welcome to Satoro Stories, LCF's object-based podcast in which I, Susanna Cordner, Senior Research Fellow at Archives, interview someone who works in or with fashion and invite them to bring an item from their work or their wardrobe and to talk to us. I'm joined today by Elizabeth Payton uh, from the New York Times, who's going to be telling us about her work and perspective with a particular objects and piece in mind. Um, so welcome Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so within that brief introduction I flagged up that part of the focus or kind of merit of this um, podcast and series is to have a object-based approach, but before we get into your object I think it'd be useful to hear more about what you do and who you are, so could you please introduce your profession? Sure, so I am the European Styles Correspondent for the New York Times. I'm based in London uh, and I cover the fashion, luxury and consumer businesses in, in Europe and actually further afield as well. I think it will really come through in our conversation today with particular interest and focus on the business and luxury side and those networks behind it. Um, but I'd be interested to hear if that's been a running strand through your whole career or if this role is a bit of a change. Pretty much. Um, I started at the Sunday Times and was an intern on the Sunday Times style wow. magazine. Um, that wasn't actually intentional. Mm -hmm. It was that it was the only job going. Right. Okay. Um, it was 2009, yeah. so any job was a great job. Um, but that was really my first exposure to the fashion world and I learned an enormous amount. It was just when we were setting up the website. Mm -hmm. But I had also, before I'd taken that job on, been an intern on the business desk. Mm -hmm. And so then the FT came knocking and wanted somebody who had that mix of experience between writing business stories yeah. and some exposure to the fashion world. And this was pre-business of fashion. There was no sort of website catering to that part of the market. And so I got that job. Fantastic. It makes so much sense to have that as a pairing, but I think you're absolutely right. It tends to be grouped as separate, and it seems revolutionary to consider the finance of fashion, but obviously the two are intangibly linked. Mm. So, yeah, that's a real part of the sector to be catering for and answering for as well. It's interesting. So there you kind of outlined how you got into fashion journalism. Did you have a clear draw to journalism before that? Did you always know this is what you wanted to do? Is it funny, really, because at school, I remember teachers saying to me you should think about journalism mm -hmm. or you should think even about fashion journalism right. and at the time it wasn't that I didn't want to do it but it just didn't feel front and center of of my ambitions I guess what I wanted to do was be a barrister mm -hmm. um, except that and this is why I'm a firm believer in work experience mm -hmm. when I actually went to do work experience you know in my summer holidays during university I actually found being a barrister a very lonely profession mm -hmm. and I realized there was a lot of sitting quietly and studying Ironically, I spend a lot of time doing that now as well. Um, but that it wasn't quite what I wanted to do. And so I kept thinking, hang on, so many of my teachers have said, think about journalism, maybe I will. And so yeah. I applied to the Sunday Times, luckily enough got onto their grad scheme and that was that really. And went from there, brilliant. So what do you think your teachers were recognising in you that you saw? So you, you said there that maybe a social aspect was a draw, but what do you think they saw growing from there? It is very funny talking about yourself when you're yeah. so sort of I think I was always extremely curious um, and I was never afraid of asking questions and I think I kept asking questions yeah. long before the subject moved on to something else. So, uh, you know, I was always asking questions, I always liked writing, um, I was very confident at public speaking, so I guess it was very clear that I was someone who liked storytelling, telling stories and learning more. Um, you know, and there's a number of career paths that you can go down to with that, but I guess they saw something there that, that I didn't see yet. Yeah. And it's kept on emerging since. Um, so I read that you're the first to hold your post at the New York Times and also the, mm -hmm. uh, the only full-time member of style staff here. Mm -hmm. Do you think that shapes your perspective, um, both in terms of your working 
life or experience in the building, but also in terms of how you write and who you think you're writing for? Yes. Um, you know, I think my job and my hiring into my job came at a really interesting time for the New York Times because uh, they're expanding internationally, basically. Um, so there was a time of big upheaval and this opportunity arose. And one of the biggest misconceptions about the New York Times, I think, is just how US-centric people think it is, when in fact there is enormous breadth in its international reporting, mm. um, something that I wasn't even fully aware of, I think, until I really joined the paper. Um, but culturally, it's very different from British papers. You know, in terms of the Sunday Times and the Financial Times, culturally, those are about as British as you can get <laughs> as institutions. And I think I found that switch initially... Um, quite challenging in a way because you talked about the language you use the, the New York Times has a very specific style yeah. that all reporters need to use it's extremely rigorously edited to make sure it falls in line with that mm. and so naturally that's falling you know that's learning a new skill set yeah. not late in my career but a good six or seven years after I'd started yeah. writing um, so your voice really has to blend with that of the New York Times and mm. it's a it's an exciting challenge but it is a challenge on how do you build a distinctive voice that people can recognize yeah versus also falling in line with the values of the times. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating, the balance in voice and the implied balance with audience there as well, particularly as I imagine as your career progresses, um, and again we'll talk about this in a moment, but you have clear strands and themes you're interested in, and to find a juggling act of making them match the publication you're So I think the clearest way that you hear my voice at the times is in the stories that yeah. I write about, mm -hmm. um, and you know that is one of the great privileges of working for the times, mm -hmm. which is actually at a time of shrinking newsrooms and budgets at many places I'm lucky enough to be somewhere that actually will give me the money to go and do the stories that I want to do when I want to do them that's not to say they just hand out money you know straight over yeah. the desk you obviously have to put together a really strong pitch yeah. have the backing of an editor um, but that is really sort of what why I'm here and why I do the work mm -hmm. I do because I think there are a few other places in the world that would let you do this yeah absolutely there's a dedication to investigation here mm. yeah it must be really really appealing I think also your role in kind of reading your articles and things here, you seem to have to balance trend reports or updates on activity within the industry with those in-depth investigations that you do. How do you find that as a balancing act? I imagine they take very different parts of your practice in, in mind, something that's kind of reactive and fast-paced versus something that might be prolonged over a number of months and a large amount of interviews. Absolutely. So I guess, you know, what everything revolves around, the sun of my annual calendar, if you like, are the various fashion weeks. Yeah. Um, and as my fiancé often says, it's always fashion week, <laughs> because it is always fashion week. There Somewhere, is, you yeah. know, couture shows, menswear shows, ready to wear. Um, but yes, I do my sort of reactive stories, my breaking news often during fashion weeks. Mm -hmm. I travel for the fashion weeks as well. I'm in London and Milan and Paris. But it's those windows in between that I get to do the sort of more in-depth, substantial, independent reporting that sort of I, I personally find the most fulfilling. Mm. Um, and obviously Fashion Week is incredibly valuable, it's incredibly important. Mm. Um, but I think as I progress in my career, it's those investigations that I find where you feel like you're really making a change or you're adding something to the dialogue. And I sort of made myself a promise about a year ago that I wanted to try and get fashion on the front page of the Times four times a year, okay. um, basically in the windows between yeah. fashion weeks. Um, and so far, I'm managing to do that. Yeah, fantastic. That's a huge achievement. And I really like the idea of being that clear cut in your goals, particularly with something where I imagine the demand for you, 
you know, your turnover and ethical production must be really high and, and the interest from the audience but having something as explicit as that as a headline. I think that also leads into the topics you tend to cover because there's a seriousness there and as you say it's some sort of going behind the scenes almost so I wrote out some of your recent, recent uh, article subjects, the unheralded artisans of Italian fashion, Peruvian prison-based rehabilitation schemes, and the Tainted Garments report from the University of California. Um, so I was really intrigued with all of those because they were about looking at the mechanisms behind luxury fashion. I think you're, yeah, there's an, an intrigue to you of, of finding out how something's made and the structures that form around it. Was that something that you knew you cared about before you were here? Or again, is it the freedom of the New York Times that's allowed you to delve in? I think it's been a combination of experiences throughout my career. I mean, I should point out at this point, I've been very lucky to have a boss and a mentor in Vanessa Friedman, who I worked for previously at the Financial Times and now have you know, been hired by over here. I think that she was the first person who really told me you know, to follow what you were interested mm. in and make sure you wrote the stories that weren't necessarily getting written. Yeah. Um, I think that the FT was very valuable, though, in terms of teaching me to be utterly forensic in reporting. Yeah. And also, they made me do... I say they made me do, <laughs> but I did feel rather outraged at the time. But I did nine months on the breaking news desk where mm. I covered everything from um, the Greek debt crisis to collapsing oil rigs in Nigeria to Britain shortages in Ireland and I think that made me um, much more confident mm. in terms of tackling anything yeah. I think I felt up until that point I had absorbed some of the criticisms that yeah. can be thrown at the fashion industry that it's superficial that it's frivolous sort of how in-depth can your reporting be mm. and once I had that um training, I yeah. guess. I felt I just really felt that actually this could be applied more than anywhere. And it, that came in line with this kind of explosion in reporting on all aspects of the fashion industry and that sort of greater degree of transparency that has come with the digital age. Um, and I think people are more curious than ever before. I think there is appetite for these stories and you just have to go out and write them. The challenge is a lot of people in the fashion industry have their hands tied and yeah, I feel like I don't have my hands tied to the same extent. Yeah. That's fantastic. So you can be the platformer and the exposer, but I'm also wondering how that works in terms of your relationships with those brands, because you've spoken about the unique significance of Fashion Week to your, mm -hmm. your you know, personal calendar as well as professional, but to be at those shows and to have the interviews that you conduct, you have to have a good relationship with those brands. Mm -hmm. Do you have a... Have there been any issues and things around being there as a maybe a critical friend and some of the exposures that you've produced? Yes and no. So for me, obviously, Fashion Week is important to lots of different reporters, editors, you know, brands. But for me, it's really about source building and brand building and meeting people. What, the runway shows I see are important, yeah. but for me, it's also about the coffees, the drinks, yeah. being able to actually meet those people and build those relationships. At the same time, fashion, as we know, is built so much, almost too much, on personal relationships. Um, and that could be tricky as well, because sometimes if you're invited around to a dinner party, a private dinner party at somebody's house, or you realise that you're becoming more of a friend than a sort of business associate with somebody, it can be very challenging if down the line you feel like you need to give them a negative review or you're going to write something critical about their business. So generally, I try and keep uh, that distance. Yeah. That having been said, I know friends and uh, fellow reporters who have had a serious knock-on effect from writing, mm. you know, true and totally valid stories, whether that's being banned from shows or not given access anymore right. to designers or CEOs. I think people are a little bit frightened of the times. Mm. And, I, and I, as a result, I have never 
touch wood, although actually if I am, then so be it, um, banned from a show or, or had an issue accessing the people mm. I, I want to access. There was, um, I did release a story last September about the use of home workers in Italy and the Italian luxury supply chain. And that was released on the first day of Italian Fashion Week, of Milan Fashion Week. And I will say, as I went into the shows of the brands that I had explicitly mentioned mm -hmm. and who acknowledged the story and hadn't sort of said that there was anything untrue about it, mm -hmm. uh, I felt a little bit nervous. But actually, all I got was polite but slightly nervous smiles from behind the clipboards and I was ushered through. Yeah, there we go. So I think that might be the theme of transparency and the fact that you're providing something that the client, the customer is interested in hearing as well. Mm -hmm. So the brands don't want to, you know, about progress rather than denial, I think, with some of these topics, which is intriguing. I think you're also really responsible in the way that you write about those topics, because I think it's one thing to call out a brand where it's about uh, based on explicit relationship or kind of connection you've built with them, and another when it's based on other sources. So I was interested with the um, Tainted Garments, your piece on the Tainted Garments report, you kind of um, followed the same line that the university had done of not naming the brands that these people were working for and, and because of that kind of supply chain of absolutely exposing this as an issue but I'm also acknowledging that this is someone's employment and you know, you're not taking a risk on their behalf. I think that's something really important to bear in mind when you do reporting like this um, is that these are people's lives and people's livelihoods um, and that your reporting can have a knock-on effect in their lives where you know it hits the front pages for a day or a week but after all that hype goes away what's left mm. um you know and there are many cases where brands have found out there's been exploitation in the supply chain and their choice has been to pull their business from that area or from that region and that doesn't necessarily help anyone i think in the case of the uh, tainted garments report um which was looking at labor abuse and exploitation um in india uh, also with home workers you know i was uh, it was a fantastic report produced by um, the university of california and therefore i was following their reporting mm. um i didn't mention uh, the names of the women that i interviewed mm. last september although i did mention the brands um but the reason i didn't name them was because i felt that their livelihoods would be at risk yeah and so I think that's really interesting because that's looking at it in the brand scale, but also looking at the networks behind it. To kind of loop back to the previous mentions of fashion shows, with your you kind of define yourself around looking at business luxury and fashion as a culmination. And I can imagine that the fashion shows are a really ripe environment for looking at that. You can literally look at the front row and you can see the CEO, but you can also see the buyer or the um, hoped for buyer. You watch relationships exactly. sort of being developed or yeah. disappearing in front yeah. of your eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Is that Does that make it right hunting ground for stories or are you there to, to track the trends? Yes and no. I mean, I don't really track the trends. I do, you know, I write about them occasionally, but there are people who do it much better than I do and whose focus is that. Um, I do find fashion shows helpful for having a chat to people. More often than not, the really valuable stories are going to be found at a coffee shop or sitting on a bench or chatting to people. Um, and I think what's really important also is with Fashion Week, you are so often presented with a beautiful packaged version of a brand and its values and um, its output. Um, and especially as everybody is so time-strapped and busy, it's very easy to, just to take that, um, which I do and I regularly do and I respect the, the hard work and dedication of a lot of people in those brands to creating that story. But of more often than not, that's not going to 
be where you find the story that I think people are most interested in or that your editors back in London or in New York are necessarily going to say, okay, go ahead with that and we're going to give this the placement and the promotion that we feel it deserves. Yeah, absolutely. So that's where you can find the original press junket and story, but you have to hunt elsewhere to find that mm. something a little bit deeper. Um, so in a moment we'll loop through to the object that you've kindly brought with you today, but maybe to um, kind of set the scene on talking about an object a little more as a curator, I'm shamelessly going to weave it in. Um, have you ever used a fashion archive collection or exhibition to aid your research for a piece or to kind of inform your understanding say, of a brand, a brand or a moment? I, I have to say, and I'm rather embarrassed to say, I haven't. I have written a lot about exhibitions. Mm-hmm. So I've seen, you know, some, like a lot of amazing exhibitions at the B&A. Or, um, and I've also occasionally gone behind the scenes at places like Sotheby's and Christie's when they have a piece that's about to go under the hammer. But again, I think because I focus less on the creative side and yeah. often more on the commercial side, it's not always an important part of my work. That having been said, those occasions when I have been given access to archives, like I went into the Dior archives in Paris mm-hmm. last year, not for a story, but just to get a better understanding, yeah. I guess, it was such a privilege, and that's one of those moments where you realise, you know, how lucky you are to have yeah. the job that you do. Amazing. It's the dream. Um, I'm interested about the fact that you went to Sotheby's. Is that, do you ever, I think there's such a rising interest in fashion as, a, as an area for collectors, um, both in terms of it being something that's stowed away as a, as a piece to be treasured and preserved, but also something for rewear with a kind of high-end vintage. Was that the angle that you were there for? Yeah, I mean, that's a super interesting luxury and business story and has been for some time, whether it's handbags or um, clothing. There's also the star power, obviously, if if you do a wardrobe sale of a particularly sort of iconic figure or celebrity, those are doing incredibly well. Um, And that doesn't really surprise me. I think people are are looking at luxury product in a different way. They're thinking about how it retains its value in a different way. Um, And these auction houses need to build their businesses and they need to think about long-term growth and it's sort of a natural marriage for many of them. Mm -hmm. The actual reason I went to Sotheby's was they had a 10,000-year-old shirt that they were selling. It was absolutely beautiful. It was Persian with these beautiful stalks on it. But what was important about that was I think it was a reminder for me that the power of public image Mm. and how you present yourself to the outside world is not a newfangled thing this was happening 10,000 years ago probably further you know since the you know since the very earliest stages Mm. and it was really interesting for me to sort of sit down with a historian and an expert and work through where the silk came from why the design was the way it was why it would have been cut the way it had been who would have worked on it Mm. Uh, you know fashion is an ancient business yeah Absolutely. The mechanisms and the messaging of fashion are alive and well, but they have that long background. I think it can be also really, sometimes looking at historical fashion can be about reaffirming what you already know, so placing what's happening in context, but also sometimes marking progress. I find that really interesting about looking about the historical pieces to see what has and hasn't changed. Um, so with that, perhaps we can move on to your object choice and the piece you've brought with you today, the fact that you're wearing. I am. Yeah. <laughs> so do you please introduce the object you brought with you um, and maybe describe it since we're on audio. Sure. So I am wearing a black stretch knit sleeved Azadine Alaya dress. Um, I got it for my 30th birthday. I thought long and hard about whether it was something I needed in my wardrobe. Um, but I would say it is the single piece of fashion that I have bought that I cherish more than any other and that I have no regrets about. Absolutely. So why? I think that's a really yeah. clear-cut opinion, but I'd be intrigued to hear what framed it. <laughs> um, 
my relationship with fashion changed a lot in my 20s. I would say at the beginning of my 20s, and this is very common for any young woman really in their young 20s, I experimented a lot more um, and would buy more into trends. I bought more fast fashion. You know, uh, you know, I was, I'd say, more of a... More of a consumer than a reporter. The more I learned about the fashion business, uh, not just how it worked, but also those who made it, mm. um, Azadine became a figure that I came back to again and again. It started when I saw women wearing Azadine Alaya, and even though these were things, these were items that had very little external decoration, right? But there was something about the internal integrity of yeah. them which made you think twice and think, what is that? How did, how could an item that could seemingly be so ordinary be so extraordinary at the same time? And every single time I ever asked somebody about it, it was an Azadine Alaya right. piece. And then the more I got to sort of, I met Azadine a few times. Um, again, my boss, Vanessa Friedman, had a very close relationship with him and I was able to meet him and spend time with him. The more I found him an extraordinary figure. And this then came at the same time as I started thinking about how I really wanted to present myself to the world. And I think when you are a fashion reporter or you spend a lot of time on the front lines of fashion, you're constantly bombarded with trends, with color, with ideas. And I found it quite overwhelming. Um, you know, there are lots of people in this business whose job is to have many different selves or to present mm -hmm. themselves in many different ways. That's not my job. Mm -hmm. And I think the more I felt sure that I was an observer rather than a participant in changing fashion, what was the uniform that would make me feel the most comfortable and confident to do my job? And uh, I, it's a cliche, but black became a, a sort of a, a sort of regular wardrobe staple but as I started thinking more about how to invest in pieces and the value of fashion and the value of product um, you know I suddenly thought to myself well maybe this is worth saving up for and it was something I saved up for a long time as everybody knows Hazardine Alaya was not cheap it's still not cheap um, but I think also as it fell in line with the 30th birthday which is a sort of significant milestone as well um, it felt worthwhile and so that's sort of why I bought it and uh, I wear it all the time. You know, I think it. it I think it's in. It's in an item that has use both at day and at night. Mm -hmm. Whether I go into a corporate office and interview a CEO, or I go into a young designer's studio and they go, oh, yeah. "It's a liar." Or even, frankly, if I'm wearing it and putting it on in the gym, the number of girls who mm -hmm. always say, "That is such a nice black dress," <laughs> and I know because he just has the sort of. He had this magical touch, didn't Absolutely, he? Yeah. And and I and I feel really privileged in a way to have a piece of that. And I feel more empowered. It sounds cliche, but you know, you think about clothing and how it empowers you. Um, you know, I am, I am not uh, plus size, but I am not stick thin either. And I think when you wear a piece of clothing where someone's really thought about a women's woman's body, I should say, sorry, you know, it, it's incredibly empowering. I think there are lots of designers out there who are ambivalent about femininity. Mm. And I think Azadine actively embraced it and relished the challenge of making women with women's bodies feel powerful. And you really feel that when you wear a piece of his clothing. Yeah, absolutely. I think particularly the idea of pulling from him his own work, it's almost like a feat of engineering. And I really liked what you said about it carries, whether it's in the CEO's office or in the gym, because mm. We look at it and we can read that and we have that understanding because fashion is something we're interested in who the designer behind it might be mm. but 
yeah, you, it could have a classic form because obviously he's been hugely influential. That could be something that's pulled through to another piece. And in terms of engineering, it's partly its structure, but it's also its longevity. The mm. fact that it doesn't date, but also the fact that you can have repeat wear because it's well made enough that you can wear this for years to come. I would say I've worn this item, other than in the height of summer, where even not, even with bare legs, mm. which I can do it with, it gets a little warm. Mm. It's worn once to twice a week. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you're sitting in front of it. It's two and a half years old. It's it yeah. looks exactly yeah, the same yeah, and I hope that it will be the same in 10 years to come yeah. I might even add a second piece of a liar <laughs> that, well that's kind of the proof, uh, the proof of some of your interests of those mechanisms behind how something's actually made and the quality that is or isn't there and I think some luxury brands survive on, on name and idea and, and shifting design alone and to find someone where you really trust the quality um, behind it. I also really like the fact that you said it builds on a personal relationship mm -hmm. and that's kind of twofold of it relating to your 30th and that changing shift in how you saw yourself but also the fact that you've met him and made this personal connection and I think yeah do you find that a lot with your clothes because our kind of conversations have actually been about that business perspective but then with your own wardrobe do you associate them with sight sound people experience? To an extent, I would say there's probably half a dozen pieces of clothing that I think hold a real sentimental value to me. But I also, by that measure, feel like I reached the stage a few years ago where clothing made me anxious. Okay. And that's not exposure to clothing. It was more my own. I think I felt like I needed to strip down my personal style. And like I said, I think in the early part of my 20s, I really embraced trends and I changed looks um, a lot. Mm. And I think people actually saw that as, as, as quite um, a major part of my personality and how I presented myself. And that's really evolved over my late 20s and early 30s. I think um, people know I have a uniform now mm. and that's partly because I I want to look good and I'm not ashamed to say that I want to look good, but I also don't feel I have the energy and the time to, to focus fully on, on what makes the most current look or the most attractive look on that given day. And so it doesn't surprise, you know, my friends now who look in my wardrobe that it's a lot of staple pieces. Mm. Yeah, I think that as well, though, is allowing it to be carried through different trends, different environments, different people. But um, I think there's something there about letting your work speak for itself and that you come into a room and you know what to expect of you rather than that you're trying to win them over instantly. Because mm -hmm. I don't know, I, I don't want you to say that it's it's thoughtless or that you're removing the effort. Sometimes I get nervous when people say that because, you know, a lot of hard work has gone into you kind of cultivating that image and that's something to be admired. And I absolutely agree. And with all the pieces that I pick, mm -hmm. There's a specific reason why I would pick that exactly. on a given day. And, you know, so much of what you do and what I do is sort of dissecting why people pick to wear the things they do at a given moment yeah. in time. Um, whether that's an individual or a group of people, which says so much about art or society mm -hmm. or culture or business or what have you. So, you know, I think that the act of the choice yeah. of um, streamlining my wardrobe, if mm -hmm. you like, should be seen as a statement of intent as itself, yeah, exactly. rather than me sitting that, you know, I never put any thought into what I yeah. wear on any given day. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's a thing within um, within museums and kind of curatorship of the curatorial black, where I think mm -hmm. same thing, similar things going on and we're streamlining. A lot of the narrative around that tends to be like, I was kind of focusing on the objects and the exhibition um, and we're trying to fade into the background. Mm -hmm. But I think it is, it's about, it is about that self-definition and about um, creating, a you know, recognising the depth of narrative and 
communication that your clothes can do on your behalf and actually just pre-planning what you want them to say and sticking to that structure. So it's interesting to hear. Um, I was also, I, I kind of wonder what it's like sometimes if you are a high fashion journalist, particularly perhaps from a business perspective, for within that you are very explicit that this isn't a normal purchase for you and this mm. is something you saved for. How does that balance in terms of your professional connections and kind of access to these clothes and their price point and then how you actually shop and yeah I mean I think as as we touched on before you are constantly thinking about how you will be perceived Mm. especially in fashion where people do judge you on how you present yourself um and I think I I guess there's there is something that pleases me at a subconscious level about looking at somebody or someone looking at me and I think they know that I've made that decision about this specific dress Mm -hmm. um in terms of the access I get I think part of the reason to streamline my wardrobe is that I do not get the perks that most other fashion journalists do get because the times has a very strict policy about accepting gifts um you know, I think I have my own issues actually with the kind of gifting policies that go on in the fashion world. I think a lot of it's to do with not paying people the right amount. That's, a, that's yeah, another that's topic a for another time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as a result, though, I, I, you know, I only have a set amount of money to buy clothes and I, and I kind of tend to work through that. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily judging anybody who chooses to buy fast fashion because it's there for a reason. It's a very powerful business model. But again, I think I did reach a point where I'd done enough work on fast fashion that I felt it would be disingenuous to continue buying it to the extent I was mm-hmm. when, you know, I had, I had started earning more money than I was in my early 20s yeah. or as a student and I could afford to invest in long-term pieces that would last. I mean, there's a sustainability angle to that um, as well. Yeah, so and social responsibility as well as a mm-hmm. clothes writer. So that's really, I really like the idea that the way, what you write about and the way you write has influenced the way you dress and the way that you think about clothes and that kind of exchange running through. You also spoke about kind of um, its relationship to your work more widely in the fact that by wearing something it being predetermined you can focus explicitly on your work because you kind of spoke about it as a communication tool and other people then focus on your work but for you is it freeing that mental energy it's already pre- been predetermined now I can focus on finding those pieces and also perhaps within that not be uh, not feel aligned or pressured or connected to particular brands and people 100 percent, mm-hmm. and I think that you know I, I think that that's really important to me and, and as a journalist I want people to think that I have clearly put thought into what I'm wearing but I also want to fit into the environment that I'm working in because I think that's when you get people really talking to you and telling you the stories that you know that are important to hear yeah so also your clothes have to kind of match your lifestyle and your professional work. So when I was researching your head of today, I wrote, found a few different mentions of the way that your wardrobe or the way that you dress relates to your um, activity. So you said something about how um, any pieces that travel with you or are useful in transit, something like a laptop cover, but I presume also something like a jacket, a coat, um, has to, you know, you put a particular level of thought into those because if it's coming with you, it has to be something that pleases you. Um, is that something that's grown out of the result of the amount that you have to travel or is that something you've always thought about about those external factors as a kind of final messaging point? It's both, but it's a largely practically driven yeah. decision, um, which is, you know, I must spend three months of the year on the road 
really. Um, and that means that I do just need to think about what will crease and what mm. won't crease, frankly, what fabrics make you smell and yeah. what don't make you smell, because you you have to think about those things. And as I said, especially when you're traveling, you have very little time to think about other things other than your work. Mm. So that's sort of always, well, that's become more of a, of a driver in recent years than it was perhaps at the beginning. So it's things like, I always have a rain mac. I always bring a pair of jeans. You actually had Penny Martin yeah. and talking about navy sweater. Love a navy sweater. Can't <laughs> go wrong with a navy sweater. Um, black slacks. It's just basic things. It's like, you know, and then you find shoes that work for you. Um, again, I've just, I, I personally like Jimmy Choo. It's an expense brand, but if you're going to spend 12 hours, 14 hours standing in heels, find the ones that are comfortable for you. So it's a support system. Yeah, and then I guess for me, there are ways of slightly sort of changing that look on a day-to-day -day basis in your shoes or your bags or your jewellery. Um, I'm not actually wearing very much jewellery today, but actually I wear a lot of jewellery normally. I like big earrings, I like rings, um, and I think that's a way, an easier way of changing the way you look when you're on the road. Yeah. To form. Well, on the note of jewellery, I also read that you um, always take your jewellery off when you're typing. Yeah, I loved that kind of bridge between because, yeah, that sounds like vaguely laborious given what you've just described about how you enjoy good jewellery. So, that balance between physicality and practicality and the way that you want it to look and feel and, and that routine is quite interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, it depends what I'm writing, um, and I think there are different zones for different mediums. Mm -hmm. um, so, if I'm writing breaking news, mm -hmm. which needs to go up ASAP, I probably won't even be thinking about it. Right. But if I'm writing a longer piece, and I would say that anything over like 750 words is a longer piece mm -hmm. for me, I take off all my rings. Um, I like to wear construction digger headphones, right. <laughs> which basically make you feel like you're underwater. And again, it's almost that's when I know I'm slipping into the zone normally. I've forgotten to take the earrings off, and then I feel the butterflies on the back digging into my ears. And so I take them out as well. Often I, I have long, um, dark hair, and I tend to tie that all up on the top of my head as well. So it's almost like I need to pull back all the adornments and just kind of work on the page. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, it's, it's funny actually now you think about the like rituals, rituals that yeah. you go into. Yeah. Um, and I always feel, you know, sometimes people ask me, does writing get easier? Mm. I, I'm not a natural writer and I think any, there aren't many reporters who will tell you that they are natural writers mm. and those who are very lucky. Yeah. Um, lots really struggle with it. I don't struggle with it. I'm not particularly wedded to my words and particularly I, once they've gone to the editor, like, that's that. That's that. <laughs> exactly. But I do always struggle with the lead. Mm, okay. And so I sort of associate that kind of like getting everything off me so I can focus on the lead because mm. once you've got the lead, the story writes itself. Yeah. For me, like yeah. some people leave the lead until right at the end. Right. But like for me, I could sit there for 20 minutes mm. thinking thinking like how what is the best way to start this then the rest of it will take 20 minutes right to, to sort of write this bit yeah oh, i really like that because I, I, I anticipated it being about the physicality and maybe the, something as simple as the clanking of a bracelet on the it's, it's also that actually it is yeah. about noise it's about but as i said it's about i think it's for me about stripping back distraction yeah. um which i guess has become was, a bit of a common theme I was say, and just yeah. being able to really really focus and i think that's also because i am easily distracted mm -hmm. Um, I I used to work in an office where somebody really liked listening to music while mm. they were working so much that it was blasting out their headphones and my response was to get these construction headphones which is now 
what I wear all the time. Okay, there we go. So you find your, I think it sounds like a bit of streamlining. An unexpected fashion accessory. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it sounds quite D&G. I'm trying to see why I'm in one past interview, you said, I want to look polished, but as a reporter, I am much less interested in my own image than I am of those um, people that I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. I think that's something that, again, I think a lot of curators do. We're always reading dress and we're using it as a way, a lens into other people. And then when someone asks it ourselves, a sort of pause point. Um, we've kind of discussed your own kind of thought process behind your clothing, but I'm curious to know what impression you think it makes. Like, if someone else was to write a piece on your wardrobe, what, what do you think they would describe it as? I, I think I, I, I used it um, earlier, but it is polished. Mm-hmm. I think there is something smart and businesslike about being polished. Um, I think it allows you to slip seamlessly from different environment to different environment. Um, I don't think you should ever look intimidating. Um, I think... I think I try and dress the same way almost that I interview, which is I want to be very professional. I'm going to be very upfront with you. There's nothing hidden. There's no surprises. Um, but I just, yeah, I don't want to be distracting. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think that's sort of the same way I approach how I ask my questions. Yeah. Again, just such great parity between mm-hmm. your thought processes and approach and your work itself. Um, so perhaps to close, in my own work and in the series, I've kind of spoken a lot about how I find fashion a really illuminating subject to talk about social subjects, mm-hmm. and particularly about biography. I find it really useful to talk about women's histories and biography in particular. Um, and I'm really intrigued by the fact that you too seem to see it as a gateway subject, but maybe into a different set of meanings. So so you tweeted recently in reply to Hadley Freeman, um, I think that if someone can't see fashion writing as an amazing access point to into definitive stories of our time, from climate change and tech innovation to labour rights, then more for them. So I just enjoyed that and wanted to include it and include it for its kind of oomph behind it. But it'd be great if to close you could expand on that and say what you think fashion can be used to discuss and to represent to our times. Sure. I mean, I just think fashion is such a democratic prism uh, for journalists because, you know, at one level it touches everybody. Everybody, as we discussed earlier, makes a decision about how they present themselves to the rest of the world, whether that's not making a decision or actively choosing not to embrace trends or specific styles or specific brands, or to think very carefully about how they position themselves in the eyes of of others, you know, every single day. Um, And there are people that cover that extensively. I think it's really interesting. I think power dressing and the politics of dress is only going to become more important as we become a more image-focused society. Um, But for me, I have always become... I've always been frustrated, I think, by anyone who uh, attempts to dismiss the serious themes um, that sort of underlie the fashion industry. Um, And... I think it's time that we are more upfront about those. And I think, as I said, again, at the beginning of our conversation, there is definitely appetite and curiosity for these stories. I see it when I look at the numbers of who is reading these stories. I look at where they come from. You can get amazing amounts of data. (laughs) Um, and And I think that's really important. And I think, you know, fashion 
is so full of characters, it's so full of cultures, and that's what, for me, makes it such fertile ground for writing. It allows you to bring these other core themes that are impacting every sector and every industry to life. So labour rights is a huge issue in fashion. It will continue to be a huge issue as long as we keep consuming fashion in the way that we do. Technological innovation is another huge thing. You know, and what is that going to do in terms of value of fashion and product and luxury as we move forward? Um, you know, I think, and lastly, well, sustainability and climate change, that is going to be the definitive issue of our time. Mm. Um, and I think it's very easy to get blinded by uh, all that fashion has to offer. But if I sort of hone in on the three or four areas that I find really interesting, just keep hammering away at them in the time that I can, you know, hopefully people will look at fashion in a different way and think about it in a different way. Um, and I guess that's my ambition for as long as I write about fashion, which is to make people take it seriously as a business. It's a hugely, hugely valuable business, generally at rating, you know, billions of dollars a year, employing millions of people. It shouldn't be ignored. Very well said. So here's to you drawing out those stories and those characters and consumers and cultures of fashion. And let's all take it seriously. Thank you very much for joining me, Elizabeth. And thank, thank you all for listening.